the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can't go into the, or down into the waters of, of baptism without stirring up a good deal of mud, says uh, Rowan Williams in his short little classic, uh, Being Christian. I remember speaking with a newly baptized parishioner who was recounting to me how their life uh, went utterly sideways after their, after their baptism. Uh, work stress, conflict in the family, health issues, it seemed like everything that could go wrong was going wrong. Uh, maybe the baptism wasn't working. Uh, maybe this was all a horrible mistake. Or maybe, I said, it's proceeding exactly as it should, and you are undergoing a spring cleaning of the Spirit, a spring cleaning of the Spirit so that love might come to dwell in you more fully. The great 40 days of Lent are a precious, precious time in the church here where we make a little space, go into the desert led or sometimes driven by the Spirit to recognize, gently name, and release all that is not God's love for us. That we might, each in our own unrepeatably unique way, manifest and express God's love for us in and through these very hands, these very feet, this voice, this witness for other people. During Lent, the church invites us, invites us to adopt certain habits of body, mind, and spirit in order to see clearly where we're, we're stuck, to open ourselves to the healing presence and action of God in our lives, and then go with Jesus to those left in the ditch, others as the very love we've received. One of the things about deserts is that in the absence of things to distract us, what we're carrying with us, our hurts, our wounds, our prejudices, our projections, begin to burble up. In the absence of a Netflix series to distract us or of a news story to wind us up into a frenzy, a laptop to browse on or a cell phone to scro scroll through, we are suddenly and rather unceremoniously left with ourselves. Yuck. <laughs> it was Blaise Pascal in the 1600s who writes, all of humanity's problems stem from people's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. <laughs> in the words of our Genesis account, uh, we cover our nakedness before God, our easy, cool of the morning, undefended intimacy with God. We, we cover that with self-images and preoccupations. Out of the empty, full space of relying on God and God alone and knowing ourselves hidden with Christ in God, where love and our belovedness are the only true thing we can say about ourselves and others, we fashion a self of our own making. What Thomas Merton, Basil Pennington, and Thomas Keating call the, the false self. 
Pennington's pithy little thumbnail of the false self is that it is the mistaken belief that my value, my value depends on three things. What I have, what I can do, and what others think of me. Possessions, power, and prestige. The false self. The desert fathers and mothers fleeing from the excesses of the Roman imperial court for a simpler, quieter life devoted to God discovered uh, the exact same thing. They left the elaborately ordered hierarchies of court life behind but found themselves in the middle of the Egyptian desert in the middle of nowhere comparing their basket weaving to the basket weaving of their siblings in Christ. Nobody weaves better baskets than I do. Or, if you're more of my disposition, in the entire history of basket weaving, there has never been a worse, more deplorable basket weaver than I. Wherever we go, there we are. Right? Zorba the Greek. What we now know uh, as the seven deadly sins uh, were originally pointed out by Evagrius of Pontus in the fourth century as places he noticed his mind go when he tried to go apart in silence and be with God. He's just trying to sit there in his hut. And he called them simply afflictive thoughts and developed a kind of uh, contemplative psychology at least as profound as what we know now as uh, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy about 2,000 years ago. But we turned into the seven deadly sins uh, were originally intended by this simple man sitting in a hut, uh, intended as innocent and he thought helpful list of places human minds go. <laughs> Eight habits of heart, mind, and spirit that capture our attention and distract us, distract us from the most important thing, the unconditional love of God revealed to us in the person of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. That's it. What Merton and Pennington and Keating call the false self, the self we construct in an attempt to secure for ourselves the peace, joy, and happiness that comes from God and God alone. Absent, really, uh, an experience of God's love for us, the well-pleased belovedness uh, that is our true identity in Christ, true of each and every one of us right here, right now, no matter where we come from. Absent knowledge of that belovedness, we look in people, substances, objects, currying favor, maintaining reputation. We look in all those things for some relief from the restlessness our hearts, of our hearts that know the peace that passes understanding only in union and communion with God. 
it's not our fault, right? We don't need to beat ourselves up about this. And there's a certain logic to looking for happiness out there. It's simply the human condition, but it's what Lent is meant to heal us of. Jesus at his baptism knows his intimacy with the Father and the Spirit. Well-pleased belovedness is his very nature. And our journey in the Christian life is to come to the very same intimacy with the Father's love. Our journey is that we participate in and become by grace what Jesus is by nature. And when Jesus goes into the desert, is drawn, led, driven by the Spirit to those empty spaces, it's to, to marinate and stabilize in the love of God recognized publicly at his baptism. The whole 40 days is a process of seeing all that is not dependence on God for everything, simply everything. And the gradual coming undone in love of every project, every tactic and strategy that seeks happiness, fulfillment, peace, justice, mercy, apart from God. Having recognized, marinated, and stabilized as the love he is, Jesus goes out after that, right? as that very love. His public ministry begins immediately after this time of integrating in and as this love. Jesus' temptations are, in the desert are particularly dramatic, of course, in their, in their presentation. Our temptations, on the other hand, are usually uh, much, much more mundane. But if we're paying attention and devote ourselves to being in God's presence a little bit, each day, we'll inevitably notice the same kinds of things popping into our minds as Jesus did. The temptations to define ourselves or secure our identity in what we have, what we do, and what people think of us. Turn stones into bread. Be in other words, uh, a self-made person, independent from God. Grab that apple. Do it yourself. Cover your nakedness. Jesus is tempted towards thinking that what he does is who he is in the same way that the Israelites, right? Their core identity as productive brickmakers for Pharaoh was challenged in the desert. Is that really who we are? Does our worth depend on how much we produce? Or is our non-negotiable belovedness as a child of God created in God's image and likeness deeper than how much we churn out? How full our calendar is? Does not God have a purpose for us, a way for us to manifest love through our life just as it is in the midst of this holy, ordinary thing we call daily life? Are not 
too young Mary and too old Elizabeth with John and Jesus leaping in loving recognition at the visitation, aren't they pointers to us that what we think of as fruitful and productive are merely human constructs imposed on the limitlessly generative fruitfulness of God who is always still at work? Now throw yourself off the temple and post a video on Instagram. Get a million likes and a legion of followers as a, as a temple-throwing, offing uh, influencer, right? Thanks, but no thanks, says Jesus. I'll find myself, anchor myself in the love of God rather than what people think of me. Neither praise in this case or blame. Increasingly frequent as Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem and journeys to and through the cross. Neither praise nor blame have the last word on who Jesus is or how he acts. Neither praise nor blame can ultimately tell us who we really are. All this will be yours. We've looked with Jesus into productivity as a place to secure our identity and found it only hollows us out from the inside. We've looked with Jesus into prestige as a place to secure our identity and find it rather fickle and dusty. Not the kind of place we want to build our house. And now we look by him and with him and in him at power and possessions as a lasting source for the happiness for which we are created and find it similarly hollow. Something we pursue when we don't know where to look for love. So where? Where then do we look? To Jesus. Always and everywhere. He is our peace, our rest, our fulfillment, and it is in relationship with Jesus that who we really are, beyond what we do, beyond what we have, and beyond what people think of us, comes to flower for others as what love looks like when it tabernacles here and finds itself spontaneously going out to others in the ordinary circumstances of our daily life. We look to Jesus in prayer, spending time in Jesus' presence, sharing sometimes in words, sometimes in silence, with the one whom we know by faith is present at the center of our own being, closer to us than we are to ourselves. Easy converse, easy converse between intimates, as Teresa of Avila calls it, or as the peasant of the 17th century in France said to describe his prayer, I look at him and he looks at me until the at falls away. We look to Jesus in the scriptures. We learn that even when we are contracted in, in fear, 
Jesus is always coming to touch us, to heal, to whisper those words, get up, don't be afraid, and remind us of who and whose we actually are. We look to Jesus in the sacraments, and like open-handed baby birds, receive the pledge of our redemption, the token of our belovedness bestowed by a trustworthy God. This is my body. This is my blood. Be what you see. Receive what you are. And we look to Jesus in the faces of the poor, serving them to meet material needs, but also serving them with our simple presence, seeing them with the same untimbered eye with which God sees them, beyond doing and not doing, beyond having or not having, beyond praise and blame, the simple, shining, blazing forth truth of belovedness in ourselves, in others, and in creation. So my prayer for this this Lent is that we dispose ourselves, incline ourselves towards God's presence and action in our life. Little offerings, little openings, here and there and everywhere. I pray that we waste time gracefully in God's presence. I pray that we might be fed with the bread of angels in in the words of Scripture and in the sacraments, but also that we watch for him passing by, mingling with the crowd in the faces of the poor and needy. But most of all, let yourself be loved this Lent. Let who you really are in Christ come to flower as God's work in you in your life as God's field. Not what you produce, not how much or how little you have, not what people think or don't think about you. What's left? What's left? Let's find out. Let's find out together this Lent as we look to Jesus, journey with Jesus, that who we really are might be revealed, that a life that is truly life might be born in us. And love, love that lays itself down for the other, that that might be our common ground. Amen.